Section three of the Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two The Invasion of the Northmen. Part two. By the end of the ninth century, a sort of naval empire had arisen, consisting of the Hebrides, parts of the western coasts of Scotland, especially the modern Argyleshire, Man, Anglesey, and the eastern shores of Ireland. This empire was under a line of sovereigns who called themselves the High Ivar, grandsons of Ivar, and lived now in Man, now in Dublin. Thence they often joined their kinsmen in their attacks on England, and at times aspired to the position of Jarls of the Danish Northumbria. It may seem strange that a kingdom so widely scattered should have held together, but the sea was their highway, and by its communication was far easier at that date than by land. Moreover, it is probable that the independence of the several isles was greater than the scanty records which we have allow. At the close of the 10th and the beginning of the 11th century, the battles of Tara in 980 and Clontarf 1014 overthrew the power of these Norsemen, or Ostmen as they were called, in Ireland, and restored the authority of the native Irish sovereign. About this time they became Christians, and in the year 1066 we find one of their princes joining Harold Hardrada of Norway in his invasion of England, which ended so disastrously in the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Magnus of Norway, thirty-two years later, after subduing the independent Jarls of Shetland and the Orkneys, attempted to reassert his supremacy along the western coast. But after conquering Anglesey, whence he drove out the Normans who had just made a settlement there, he crossed to Ireland to meet his death in battle in 1098. The sovereignty of the Isles was then restored to its original owners, but soon after split into two parts, the Suderies and Norderies, whence the terms Sodor and Man, north and south of Ardmurkin Point. The next glimpse we have of these dominions is at the close of the twelfth century, when we find them under a chief named Somarled, who exercised authority in the islands and Argyleshire, and from him the clans of the highlands and the western isles loved to trace their ancestry. After his death, according to the highland traditions, the islands and Argyleshire were divided amongst his three sons. Thus the old Norse empire was finally broken up, and in the 13th century, after another unsuccessful attempt by Hako, king of Norway, to re-establish the authority of the mother kingdom over their distant possessions, an attempt which ended in his defeat at the Battle of Largs by the Scottish king Alexander III in 1263, they were ceded to the Scottish king by Magnus IV, his son, in 1266, and an alliance was cemented between the two kingdoms by the marriage of Alexander's daughter Margaret to Eric of Norway in 1281. 4. Meanwhile, the Northmen had discovered Iceland. The first discoverers were a Viking named Nadad and Gardar, a Swede, and they, returning home, praised the land. They had climbed a high fell on the eastern side to see if there were any signs of men, but saw none. The friths, they said, were full of fish. In some of the fields in the summertime, butter dropped from every blade of grass. 
but the winter was cold, and toward the north they had seen frith after frith packed with drift ice. Hence they called it Iceland. It was evidently a secluded place, quiet and scarce trodden by the foot of man. When therefore Harold Haufager had driven the peaceful proprietors from their home by his heavy hand, and had even subdued the Orkneys and the Shetlands, those who were weary of these feuds sailed north to Iceland and Faroe, and sought rest in those quiet lands. Inkul Arnarson came first in 874, and settled in Reykjavik, and others soon followed him. Thus the colonization of Iceland seems to differ somewhat from the other settlements of the Northmen. The few inhabitants found there, probably Celts, did not offer much opportunity for spoil, and the least warlike of the Northmen were attracted thither. To Iceland they transferred their system of clan government, which they had enjoyed in Norway before the rise of the domestic feuds, and established it with some modifications. The country was well suited to such a state of society, cut up as it is by desert tracks and raging watercourses, where each valley is separated from the next by lonely heaths, snow-clad fells, and plains of barren lava. As the number of the colonists increased, however, changes were introduced. Over the district assemblies an all-thing was established in 930. This, the common assembly of the whole island, met in the plain of the all-thing in the south of the country. A code was drawn up, and a lawman elected as president of the assembly. Here laws were passed, and private suits eventually decided before judges appointed by the lawman. If the parties were not satisfied, a last appeal lay to their trial combat. These were fought on an island in the river hard by, and were regulated by a code of honor. The executive was entrusted to a court of laws, Logretta, the members of which were the lawman and twelve judges of district courts or assemblies, who were chieftains and priests besides. This court of laws, sitting in the hall of laws, declared the law, voted public grants, elected the lawman, and decided questions affecting the community at large. Thus, practically, the government was an aristocratic republic, and the real power lay in the hands of the chief men of each district, who alone could be judges, the lawman, and members of the court of laws. Every free man might, indeed, challenge their decisions, and by his simple prohibition, render the decrees of the court of laws illegal, but by this he was sure to incur the wrath of the powerful families, and the right was not often exercised. The power was, there is no doubt, virtually in the hands of an aristocracy, and the abolition of combat on the introduction of Christianity in the eleventh century placed the freemen still more in the hands of the judges and their assessors, but their condition was at least superior to that of their class in other countries at that date. Individual freedom was but little interfered with, and their life seems to have been prosperous and happy. It was here that the Scandinavian literature was preserved, and as before mentioned, that the elder and younger Eddas were compiled by Seymund Sigfusson and Snuri Sturluson. From Iceland the Northmen discovered Greenland, and settled there in 981. Perhaps the reason for this may be found in the gradual increase of aristocratic privilege in Iceland. 
however that may be, a prosperous colony was established there, which lasted until the colonists were all destroyed by the great plague which swept over Europe in the 14th century, and, if the traditions be true, some sailed thence and discovered Vineland or America. Meanwhile in Iceland the power of the chieftains increased, and a sure sign of this, in the latter half of the 12th century, jealousy sprang up between them. Then the prosperity of the colony rapidly declined, and in the middle of the 13th century it was occupied by the King of Norway and the Republic destroyed. 5. The settlement of the Northmen in Russia is too large a subject and lies so far out of our way that the briefest notice must suffice. While the western seas had been the scene of the exploits chiefly of the Danes and Norsemen, the Swedes had taken to the Baltic and spoiled or levied tribute from the Slavonic tribes along the coast. In the year 862, Rurik, a Swede, was called in by the Slavonic tribes to settle their disputes. Our land is large and rich, the suppliants said, but order in it there is none. Do ye come and rule over us. Rurik, thus invited, came and occupied Novgorod, 862-879, while his followers settled at Kiev. After Rurik's death, Oleg, his kinsman and guardian of his young son Igor, overcame the independent princes of Kiev, which henceforth became the capital of Russia. Here, rapidly amalgamating with their subjects, the descendants of Rurik long held the title of Grand Prince. In the 10th century they established commercial relations with Constantinople. Sailing down the Dnieper, they reached the Euxine and the Hellespont, and in the markets of Constantinople exchanged the commodities of the north, furs, hides, and slaves, for the corn, wine, and oil of the sunny south. The riches of the empire soon excited their jealousy, and these friendly relations were exchanged for those of enmity. In a period of 190 years, from 865 to 1043, the Russians made four attempts to plunder the imperial city, and though eventually unsuccessful, were only defeated under the very walls. They dragged, we are told, their ships ashore, and mounting them on wheels, sailed on dry land up to the gates. At the end of the 10th century, Vladimir, the descendant of Oleg, and then Grand Prince of Russia, married the sister of the Eastern Emperor Basil, and became a convert to Christianity in 988. The Slavonic translations of the scriptures written by Cyril and Methodius in the 9th century passed into Russia and became the national Bible of the Russians. During the reign of his descendant, Yaroslav, the connection between the princely house of Russia and the Scandinavians of the West was close. St. Olaf of Norway and the Russian prince had both married daughters of Olaf, king of Sweden. At his court the saint had found a refuge when driven out by Canute of England. King Olaf eastward over the sea, to Russia's monarch, had to flee. And on Olaf's final defeat and death at the Battle of Stiklista, his only son Magnus found shelter at his uncle's court, whence he returned to overthrow Sven, the son of Canute, and regain the throne of Norway in 1036. Hitherto another fugitive had come, 
Harold Hardrada, the half-brother of St. Olaf, who, though only a boy of fifteen, had fought in the Battle of Stiklista. Since the beginning of the tenth century, the emperors of the East, anxious to secure the assistance of these stalwart warriors of the North, had enticed some of them south and formed them into a bodyguard under the name of the Varangians, Var, Oath, Varinyar, Greek, Baragoi, Bound by an oath to the emperor and placed under a strict military code, they enjoyed great privileges. They kept watch at the door of the imperial bedchamber and lodged in the palace itself, and at the death of the emperor had the curious privilege of roaming at will through the imperial treasury and carrying off what they would. To Constantinople Harold came in 1032 and in the service of the emperor led the Varangian guard against the Saracens in Egypt and Syria, thus anticipating the future deeds of the Normans in the Crusades, and saw Greece and Italy, where he fought with his distant kinsmen the Normans, who were already settled in Italy. In this service he gained a widespread fame and amassed an enormous treasure. Then, quarreling with his master the emperor, he went back to Russia in 1044, to marry Elizabeth, the daughter of Yaroslav. Thence he returned to Norway to share that kingdom with Magnus the Good, his nephew, till the death of his rival left him the sole possession of the Norwegian throne. Nineteen years afterwards, as we shall see, he crossed to England to claim that kingdom from Harold, the son of Godwin, and to end his strange life at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Meanwhile, in Russia, Yaroslav had died to be succeeded by Isavold and then by Vladimir II, who once more came west for a bride and married Githa, the daughter of the English herald Hardrada's foe. Here we must take leave of Russia, still in the hands of the descendants of Rurik, who were to hold the crown for yet five hundred years. End of section three.